Welcome to Looks Like New. On KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Whether you're listening to my voice in your car, or on your drive home from work, streaming it via the KGNU app on your phone or other streaming platform, we're all interacting with community-funded radio. It is easy to get caught up in the ways that we engage with different forms of broadcasting, and streaming seems to have taken the world by storm. There are huge media giants, and at the same time, There's this explosion of individuals and alternative voices gaining audiences across the globe. Specifically in the United States, there are special ways that airwaves open access to information from cities to rural communities. Something we may not consider, however, is where all of this came from. How did we arrive at the present state of radio and public broadcasting? Essentially, What is our public broadcasting and media history, and who preserves it? This show asks old questions about new technologies, and the title of this show itself asks us to reflect on what we have today and how it masquerades as something new. To explore this history, we can learn from the incredible work of scholars like Dr. Josh Shepard. So today, we're going to have a conversation with him asking the question, where did public media come from? Dr. Josh Shepard is an assistant professor in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's a media historian who researches critical media theory and critical intervention in media practice, and he spends a lot of time working with archives and public broadcasting in the United States. In fact, Dr. Shepard serves as a sound fellow of the Library of Congress National Recording Preservation Board and multiple digital preservation advisory boards. His manuscript, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, argues that the U.S. public media originated as a grassroots coalition to increase equal access to education through technology during the 1930s. Most recently, Dr. Shepard is directing a team with the Library of Congress to facilitate donations of digitized recordings and associated metadata for ingestion into the library's permanent digital archive. We're delighted to have the chance to have this conversation with you today. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Shepard. Thank you for having me. So we'll go ahead and get started and kind of talking about the journey how you got here. So I know that you are a media historian who has so many experiences with the origins of communication studies and public media, especially in the United States. So I was wondering, how did you arrive at this line of study? Yeah, I had grown up in Chicago and I um, studied philosophy. And when I was reading, uh, you know, these different theories of publics and political philosophy and what a good society looked like, it got me really interested in non-commercial media, really at a pretty early age, about age 15 or 16. And I got really into like college and public media. And uh, that led to um, 
working in various capacities around Chicago at um, College Radio, WNUR in Chicago, uh, WBEZ in Chicago, doing broadcast engineering work. And it, they kind of synthesized at some point in my 20s where it was like, okay, media, non-commercial media, concepts of democracy, use of media for democracy. And yeah, and I when I went to grad school, uh, I went for media and cultural studies at the University of Wisconsin. And there was a professor there named Michelle Hilms, uh, who was a very distinguished media historian. And she taught me how to use archives. And it turned out that almost the entire proto history of public media uh, was stored at the University of Wisconsin archives with the National Association of Educational Broadcasting or NAEB materials. Uh, they were also split uh, at the University of Maryland. And so I just kind of started to sit in the archive for hours and hours at a time and read papers and read old ledgers. And uh, it all kind of became just a history project about where did non-commercial media come from. And the more I dug into the history, the more I realized that no one had actually written the history before in a comprehensive way. There's several very good pieces of this history. And, uh, you know, I use them uh, as resources for my own research and know the people who wrote those histories. But we're the only country of our type that has not written a history of its non-commercial media infrastructure. Uh, but we have very thorough histories of commercial media. And I thought this was a pretty deep ideological problem uh, with the discipline of media studies. And so I kind of set out to fill in some of those blanks. And along the way, uh, I picked up a great colleague named Allison Perlman at the University of California at Irvine. And now she and I are co-writing the official history for public media uh, for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and its trade journal, uh, which is called Current. Yeah, that's it's fascinating to me to think about just how that gap exists at all. Like, I don't know, I feel like today it's so easy to assume that like, oh, we have everything chronicled and there's a history of all of this and it's it's wild to think like, oh wow, actually there's a major need for for work in this area, um especially in the US context. And so, just to kind of continue, you know, talking through this, I'm thinking about public media. I know you mentioned commercial and non-commercial media, and uh, it might be tempting to immediately like think, oh, social media or you know television broadcasting. And I was just wondering if you could spend a few moments, you know, explaining what does public media mean to you? Maybe breaking down what commercial and non-commercial media means. And like, how would you define those? What would you describe? Um, and like, where did they come from, essentially? Yeah. Uh, we could begin with commercial media, uh, which is extremely well run, uh, has produced immense numbers of great programs. You know, it, it's not an anti-commercial media project, is, but it is, um, I think, a question about what better serves American democracy um, when you look at a comparison between a public and a private institution. So commercial media, you know, derives out of uh, manufacturing. RCA was, what was it, United Fruit? Um, uh, GE, um, Westinghouse, AT&T, you know, all these groups were a conglomeration uh, really until uh, after the 1930s. And they were producing receivers as broadcasting moved from a one-to-many model. 
Um, so from a point to point where it was more like a walkie talkie almost to uh, a one talking to a large audience model. That's where NBC came from. And they found very quickly, uh, really by about 26 or 27, um, that advertising was actually immensely profitable and producing a receiver uh, was not the only way to accumulate uh, profit. So it wasn't just selling a receiver because you were producing, um, you know, the materials through uh, the manufacturing. So, yeah. So what happens is, you know, by the late 1920s, you have a pretty fully developed commercial broadcasting structure in which there are outside interests determining content on commercial broadcasting programs. And in some ways, this was good. And in other ways, it wasn't so good, especially with certain kinds of representational tropes that were reproduced uh, from different types of racist performance and gendered imagined roles uh, that had to be performed in these broadcasts. In other ways, they mastered the um, aesthetics of broadcasting very quickly because GE and Westinghouse uh, were based really between Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. And they were able to accumulate talent from vaudeville, from Tin Pan Alley, and all these places. So they have this very highly sophisticated talent. It's very funny. They know how to use the medium correctly. They have a way to fund all of the talent through advertising. Advertising has perhaps undue influence over the content, depending on the interests at hand. Um, and you know, by the early 1930s or so, um, they owned all the infrastructure for the production. They owned the wires with AT&T, and they were able to really monopolize public sentiment and public imagination about what media might be in this country, in contrast to, let's say, like a state run, like BBC or something. So uh, by 34, you know, you get the Communications Act, and the Communications Act uh, was essentially a deference to that infrastructure that was self-sustaining, and that was very appealing to legislators, even if the legislators were sympathetic to public programs. And we can come back to that a little bit. Now, public media, uh, in contrast, began as classroom extension services. It was essentially distance learning in the 19-teens uh, that became radio broadcasts for correspondence classes. So you get like home economics, you know, something we don't really have anymore, music appreciation, uh, you get uh, maths, you know, you get uh, dialect training, uh, there are some really strange programs, like how do you use public uh, plumbing? Well, I think it was one in Oregon, you know, <laughs> in the 1920s. But they really didn't understand the medium. It was really just people like us, uh, academics, talking into a mic, no thought about how it sounded. Uh, and it was just uh, instruction. It was lecture. And there were very few uh, digressive models that cared about the entertainment factor that audiences were being trained to hear. Uh, the, the most... Um, successful ones were Wisconsin and Ohio State. Okay, so by the time we get to the 1930s, you know, we have sort of the, already the auspice of the public-private divide. Uh, you have educators uh, just simply broadcasting content to increase equal access to education. And then you, and this was out of universities, sometimes it was out of school districts. And then you have commercial broadcasters, and there were the national networks, there was NBC and CBS, and then there was also regional broadcasters, and they were, um, you know, it was an extremely uh, effective aesthetic model and program model uh, on the commercial broadcasting side and an extremely ineffective model on the non-commercial media side. 
And so after 34, uh, you have this moment in which almost all of the frequency licenses, because uh, they only really had AM at that point, so there was a limited, they call it frequency scarcity, um, a limited number of frequencies uh, were just given to commercial media because uh, the government and the state governments didn't really have to worry about it. It was going to be taken care of. And they sh- actually shut out all educational opportunities for uh, about 80, 85% of the country could not access education anymore through media. And so this led to um, a kind of a broad movement uh, in which non-commercial media became its own uh, voice. And so there was a lot of, so public media is based in this fidelity to a mission statement. It's based in this fidelity to a model uh, by which equal access to education through technology is more important than the self-sustaining uh, attributes of a media industry uh, that is searching for profit or logics of accumulation, as we see in media studies sometimes. Uh, and so that's it. Yeah. So, so they're really very similar in the end in how they produce broadcasts now. Uh, but the big difference is that one is for profit and one uh, is supposed to be democratically ameliorative, <laughs> you know, and in, in a way, like I just love the philosophical concept that an entire set of media practices can be based around a concept or an aspiration. And uh, it's really quite unique in uh, history to have that kind of a public. And, uh, you know, I think it needs to be protected and studied. Yeah, it, it is. That's fascinating. First of all, thank you for the distinction there. Um, Cause I think you're right. It, they are similar, but knowing those different like intentions of like, why is one operating versus the other, right? Like that definitely changes and it determines like what the function of it will be. Um, so I appreciate you you know, defining that for us today. And that kind of brings me to another question here, which is about media reform, which I know is something that you also spend a lot of time thinking about and working uh, with. And so I wanted to know, you know, it, it's an ongoing conversation and and I wanted to know, like, what are the relationships between media reform, public media, and maybe even going back to the origins of communication studies? Yeah, thank you. Media reform is, uh, you know, a pretty well-written-about subject. Uh, you have Robert McChesney and Victor Picard uh, and uh, the Illinois School's history working on that in communication studies. It's a very distinguished tradition. Uh, my colleague Allison Perlman, also Hugh Slatton, Laurie Ouellette, Ralph Engelman. So there's been scholars that have uh, talked about media reform uh, very persuasively, I think, and have done really excellent historical work on this. Uh, one turn that I take on this history, um, sort of in friendly contrast, is that media reform uh, was not just uh, a model of resistance to commercial broadcasting, uh, which tends to be the way that the history is looked at. Uh, essentially, you have this commercial broadcasting apparatus, it's gigantic, it's profitable, and they have all the frequencies. Uh, and then there's activist movements. I think this is all true. But there's this other side of media reform in which uh, you can't have dissension without imagining how the system might look differently and the step-by-step machinations by which the system becomes different, right? So one of the things that I think uh, we could define media reform as is something that originated in the late 1920s, ran through the New Deal, uh, really until the 1950s or so, um, had advocates within and outside of the system 
but most interestingly to me, uh, began to innovate new ways of seeing, new ways of seeing how media could be thought about, how it could be uh, implemented, who the audiences might be, if they're large or small, um, ways in which democracy can be uh, improved uh, through the use of technology. And so a lot of media reform history has to do with discussing uh, the way that democracy was facilitated or not, right, through policy and different activist movements. And one thing I try to do uh, that I hope is novel in my work is look at the moments in which it actually succeeds at doing so, uh, not just the moments that we should be critiquing politi through political economic approaches, which uh, I identify with. I, I identify myself as a political economist. But we have these other moments where something happened. And in those moments that something happened, um, a, a precedent or a path dependency was set by which we could use technology in ways that were better than before. And by better, because <laughs> that's a pretty difficult word and it should be challenged, um, I mean better access to the airwaves, such as community broadcasting, um, more attention uh, to alterity experience and not just dominance, um, programming that does expand the imagination of children, you know, from head start on. Uh, and, and just there's a remarkable series of innovations that take place through the concept um, that media should be ameliorative. Uh, so I think media reform has these two sides, has this critical side and it has, I think, uh, this very productive side and system building side. Yeah. And so that actually is making me have other questions too about like examples perhaps of where you saw this taking place, like either historically or even in the current day, like what what were moments of media reform that you like to kind of focus on or explore and like what draws you to those? Yeah. I, so I think you usually have the moment of failure in which in an archive, the archive trail will show that that name or that institution will kind of drop off and trail away or something new happens. So I'm always curious in those moments in which like one activist group might end and then see what the same people did next. So you play the detective work, you know, and you say, well, can that name, where does this name show up in other archives? And uh, one of my favorite anecdotes, uh, you know, that's in the book uh, about this history is that um, there was this really great activist organization called the National Committee for Education by Radio. It's very well detailed in multiple um, very strong historical works uh, that are crucial uh, to understanding our discipline. Uh, but most of those works end about 34, which was the Communications Act, because the Communications Act was seen as this great failure and almost like paradise lost, you know, for educators. We could have had this educational system and it was kind of canceled by the Communications Act. That's part true. Uh, and it must be taken seriously how poorly uh, the deliberation went on the part of the Senate in that law. Uh, at the same time, that group transformed within two years of the Communications Act to build something called the Rocky Mountain Radio Council, right out here in Colorado, also in Wyoming. It was actually based in Wyoming uh, primarily. Uh, and they called it public media. So the, the term public media emerges out here in Colorado by roughly 1936. And it actually, I found letters that go even earlier than that in previous, uh, like, um, uh, proposals uh, that the person who founded it uh, named A.G. Crane, who was the president of the University of Wyoming, wrote. So so in other words, most of our histories of the NCER are about how it was this great activist group that then got quashed by 
um, you know, federal legislation. And they do mostly disappear after that. However, out of the ashes of that reform failure is a strategic shift. And that strategic shift was successful at innovating the first non-commercial network. And by non-commercial, I mean there was no profit motive and no income outside of philanthropic and state-based funding. Uh, so uh, listener support comes much later uh, for these kind of things. So the, you know, if you look through the history of public media um, and its ties to media reform, uh, because media reformers were really fundamentally interested in other ways to get around commercial media, uh, even if they weren't overtly working on educational media, uh, you see that like every time something didn't work, these groups bounced back. And then not only did they bounce back, they created a new genre, they created a new way to network, and they created new research models to understand how audiences worked. And it becomes this really rich intellectual history um, that really is one of the great intellectual histories of the 20th century in the country, I think, uh, because a lot of our public policy research was developed by these same um, protagonists within the story uh, as they tried to make educational broadcasting better and better and better and more effective at educating. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Dr. Josh Shepard about the origins of public media. I appreciate that you walked through like that one example because I think that's obviously super salient being in Colorado, right? But definitely too, I wanted to circle back. I know you've mentioned the Communications Act of 1934 a few times, and I was kind of wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what exactly happened? Like, why did this Communications Act emerge and then obviously get passed? And like, what was kind of going on in the national context at the time? Yeah, uh, there's a lot to say about this. And, and some of it is, is pretty boring, I think. <laughs> I think the gist is that, you know, um, in the in the buildup to and immediately post-depression, uh, there was a lot of free market modeling for what all commerce might look like. Uh, and so what you see in the late 1920s, and this has been written about very importantly by Robert McChesney at Illinois, uh, is that um, by the late 20s, they had already had a vision for um, non-governmental oversight media ownership, right? It was a, a semi-deregulated model, and they called that public interest instead of public service, right? So the educators had this public service model in mind, um, but the regulators under Hoover, you know, and et cetera, had this notion that really what we need are for entrepreneurs, you know, to run their own media stations. And if they could pay for it themselves, then it was working great. 
and that was kind of the model. So there's a lot to say about this, but they end up defining this uh, three-part term, public interest, convenience, and necessity. And what that becomes associated with is standardization of technical approaches to broadcasting, that you that you have the wires to broadcast, or, or you know, you have the um, uh, tower, right? Or you have the talent and you can fill the broadcast day. But sort of these like, public questions about what's like good for the public are not being addressed whatsoever. And to some extent, it's not the commercial industry's fault because the public really did want to hear Tin Pan Alley piano playing. Right? That is actually what the public wanted to hear much more than you know being told about Shakespeare or history or something like that. Uh, they were semi-interested and they thought it should happen. It should There should be stations for that when you look at early like polling and you look at uh, early reports from the 1920s and 30s. But the public really did just want to kind of listen to the proto Jack Benny types, you know, or Fibber McGee and Molly and, you know, just comedy and stuff like that. So like, how do you keep a station like that going from a commercial angle when the audience isn't going to come back? Right. And then the sponsors didn't want to, you know, throw money at it. So from their perspective, you know, within a free market model, uh, it's not very viable and you can, you could see their perspective. So how that comes to preclude um, public service models, I think, becomes the big story for media history that's been written about many, many times in different ways. And, and so what happens is by 1934, a few other policies happen in between, but by 34, I mean, the infrastructure is just so strong for commercial broadcasters. And in my findings in the archives, uh, educational broadcasters were so incipient. They, they really didn't know what they were doing yet in terms of how to produce broadcasts people actually wanted to hear that it's just the regulation was lazy and it, and it just all the previous 1927 which was the federal radio council and radio act policies um all all of those policies just got reinstated seven years later um and then it, it was really centered around can you just simply run a radio station not like what's good for students you know all these kind of things and so it all kind of got swept up in the 1934 act by which I don't think anyone quite realized how unprepared universities were to defend their own signals uh, because they didn't have FM yet. They didn't have television yet. So they, they had this very limited spectrum of signals. And if they were going to have a competitive atmosphere, it essentially was canceling out uh, the different types of alternatives. This also included, by the way, religious broadcasts it and also and union broadcasts um, and uh, different kinds of uh, like women's groups. And I'm trying to think of all the different groups that I saw advocating. Educators were the biggest because universities were pretty stable, you know, and they had curriculum. But there are a lot of groups that got shut out in 34 uh, by the commercial broadcasters. So the Communications Act becomes this sort of ground zero moment for the American system. Is after that, almost every type of media enterprise in mass media going through digital now is going to be based in private hands with pretty limited regulatory oversight. Um, and... and it's failed as a system sometimes in this way and other times I think it's been pretty amazing actually and produced really uh, exceptional content. So like I said, I'm not really, I'm not anti-commercial. I actually spend most of my time listening to and, and engaging with commercial content uh, and I'm a fan of a lot of it, but uh, I, I, this feels like there's something that kind of went wrong and got very uneven with that history. And then the rest of that history on, uh, you know, the educational side is just, to meet this aspiration and to materialize the possibility for equal access to education. It's like, why, how does this become something that is not being allowed to happen 
within the American media system. And then there's a lot to say about this too. Yeah. And, you know, I'm definitely, as I'm, I'm thinking about even the ways I was learning when I was younger and stuff and like the types of, you know, broadcasts and, and things I was listening to that were educational, they had the, that educational purpose and intent. Um, it is interesting to think about how this, it all kind of came out of, out of this moment and this decision that was made, obviously, you know, it's a huge decision, but the decisions that are made, you know, in our past that are impacting kind of that, that future trajectory. And I definitely will, we will circle back to kind of some of the things that give you hope about the future of public media, especially, but um, I did want to also spend a moment and talk about your work with the Library of Congress. Um, I know that you've been working with them for a few years now, and I was wondering if you could explain a bit more about the archival work that you've been involved in and what's happening there. Um, so we can talk specifically about the sound submissions project as well, but just kind of more broadly to start, you know, what's been going on at the Library of Congress? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I think, the first media historian hire into my previous job in Washington, D.C. in at least several years. And there were two giants there, uh, academic giants, uh, Christopher Sterling, who was the dean at George Washington University, and Douglas Gomery, who's the most published film historian, I think, in the history of the world or something like that. <laughs> He's like this remarkable, like, article per week type that you just never really find, you know, uh, and, and wrote for The Village Voice and all these other places. And so, and they were looking, they were both well into their 60s by the time I got there and were looking for people to help them with projects. And something about DC when you're there is you just kind of get pulled into stuff, like whatever your sector is, they kind of will maybe sort of rock bottom <laughs> work, or it might be something a little better. And I got pulled into the Radio Preservation Task Force, which was a mandate of the National Recording Preservation Plan of the Library of Congress National Recording Preservation Board. Okay, so it's very DC kind of stuff, a lot of acronyms if you cut it down. But essentially what they found uh, in an earlier report uh, was that um, there was no organized radio preservation project in the history of the country. That's one thing the Library of Congress had determined uh, through research. There was no way to find out what had been preserved. There was no central like search apparatus uh, there was no like catalog, uh, and most of radio history had uh, been printed on obsolete media. So different kinds of tape machines that don't exist anymore. And so, uh, you know, really by the early 2010s, Library of Congress, and this is one of their jobs, had um, felt like, well, we have to start some kind of clearinghouse structure to raise awareness about the problem of the loss of audio history. And so uh, I was picked up to help build the project. Um, and, you know, I just I had a lot of pals, <laughs> you know, in the academic biz. And within the first year, I think we had accumulated like 100, 100 universities worth of um, representatives. And then by year three, I think we'd already had like 40 something federal and public partnerships and about 300 um, professors and archivists on the project. And it's a little smaller now, but it's still got to be 170 or so uh, institutions. And so what happened is uh, everyone realized that not only is this a serious problem uh, and for two reasons, uh, the first is that all the collections are being dumped because no one can play them back. And the second is that these materials have certain kinds of glues on them that actually uh, promote decay of the tapes. So they're also like have a, a limited shelf life, even if they do exist. Uh, and so they said, well, how are we going to address this on a national scale? 
And uh, while I was in DC, which was uh, you know about six years, um, I went about building projects uh, to get different uh, federal and academic and archival institutions to work together, so that they could uh, you know promote digitization and etc. And we were very careful not to become an institution ourselves uh, because we wanted to help other institutions uh, preserve what they had uh, you know in their collections. So I've worked on. It's got to be close to 50 grants over the past six, seven years. And none of the money goes to me. I won't take it. Uh, it all goes to the institutions. And so I kind of became this like ghost grant writer, you know, working on these projects. And in our field, we'd call that public humanities, you know, for the listeners, right? So like it, it is academic research of a type. It's a very unusual academic research, and I've continued to do it. Uh, I stepped down as director this year, and we have a new director at UCLA, Dr. Sean Vancour, uh, who also runs their graduate program in media archival studies. And we have uh, Dr. Neil Verma at Northwestern University, who runs the MA in sound studies there, uh, organizing our next conference. And now we have these like big conferences on Capitol Hill every few years, COVID notwithstanding, uh, in which we try to bring in every sector to discuss how to work out the problems associated with this. And it really, the payoff is surprising insofar as the materials that we find aren't just Jack Benny, which is great, right? It's not just old vaudeville recordings from NBC or CBS or whatever. Um, it also is history of media activism. Uh, it's the history of civil rights programming. And essentially it's documentary evidence from call-in shows uh, and different other types of programming so that um, we have an expanded representational diversity within where research can take place and within where um, the public can access these different points in our history that you don't find uh, in paper trails, we call them in history. So we don't we don't find them in paper archives, but, but it turns out radio has this entire genesis of an alternative archive in which all the things we lament that we're missing in paper turn out in sound. And of course, with new technologies, you can have these sound recordings turned into uh, transcriptions now. So they actually can become paper trails too at the same time. So that's it. So like, it's like this, uh, we would call that public humanities. And I, I've spent thousands of hours just trying to get people to work together um, so that we could preserve some of these materials. And that's that's what the task force does. This may seem like a silly question to follow up with this, but I was like, you know, how did how did this happen? Like, how did they just have, I mean, what I'm imagining is, this is probably incorrect, but I'm imagining like piles and piles of like old audio recorded files and like some, you know, decaying technology form. Like, how did, how did this occur? Like, was it just, you know, they had boxes in, in the corner somewhere that they were like, we'll get to those eventually? Or was it just kind of, was audio just not considered something like worth preserving in the same way that, you know, paper was. Yeah, you're right on both counts. Yeah. So there's, there's these huge piles. Uh, eventually people need space and they toss them or they try to give them away. <clears throat> A lot of archives don't have um, space. So if basically when you donate to an archive and they do very important work, and I'm a huge fan of the work that archivists do, most people don't even notice it. I think it's crucial to our public memory. But most of the time when... Uh, you donate something, you're actually requiring time of a processing archivist and shelf space within an archive. And so if they can't even play back the materials and they don't have the money to pay additional labor, uh, you know, to take care of those materials and tag the materials, 
then they can't take it. So yeah, so that's one big problem is that uh, archives largely have not taken sound materials. I, I, I don't want to get deep into weeds on this too, but I think there's a historical bias against sound as a primary source too. People didn't think of it as uh, legitimate of um, a, a point of like dominant narrative or something like that. And I think it actually is tied into who was on the radio. So if it was a civil rights activist broadcast in the early 1970s, that was really pretty much frowned upon until pretty recently. And I think that we need to hold to task that generation for deliberately destroying some of these sound collections. That's not true for most of the people now who are working in the archive world. They're extremely enthusiastic about finding these solutions, but the money's not there, right? So it's it's kind of like we have no earmarked money for it. We don't have places to put it. <laughs> you know, everyone thinks it's important, but no one knows how to play it back. You know, so it's like we have this just perfect storm against um, cultural history in this country by which we cannot or will not address the omissions in our cultural history. This is why I love community radio because the community radio is just continuing to produce the stuff that we want to preserve now. Like what's happening now in community radio and the digit digitization of it, and the, which is spectacular, um, is going to be our record in 50, 60 years that we're going to write our dissertations or we're going to access, you know, for, uh, you know, podcast listening and all that kind of stuff um, in that way. But it is a problem that we have not found a solution for yet, but we're working on it. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, and, and it's really important work, obviously. Um, and, and that does bring me back to kind of wanting to learn more about the Sound Submissions Project. I know you mentioned there's hundreds of universities that are now involved in it, but are the archives that you all are kind of working on, which I know there's different, you know, segments and different teams of people working on different subjects and whatnot. But I was wondering if you could explain like where these archives maybe are, like how they're being, you know, kind of sorted through, what are some things that are kind of emerging already out of this work? Um, and if you wanted to share any anecdotes as well, you are welcome to do that. Yeah. Sound Submissions is just getting started. Uh, the Radio Preservation Task Force, RPTF, is across multiple institutions. It's quite large as a project. Sound Submissions is our attempt to address the shelf space problem that I just discussed. So there's other great preservation projects. I'd really like to point out how great Indiana University and University of California at Santa Barbara are. They are very dedicated to preserving audio history and have um, really provided a lot of leadership in that area for the country. Um, University of Maryland has also been really important and they have the public broadcasting archives, the second half of that. Uh, so, but, <laughs> you know, there's all these collections in personal hands and especially in collector's hands. And a lot of the times when these collections couldn't find an archive, it ended up in someone's garage, in their basement. DJs themselves would save their own show histories you know, uh, and then and then they might or might not pass. And then the kids are like, what is this about? We'd love to save it, but what do we do with this? You know, is it worth anything? <laughs> Which always comes up as a question. And so Sound Submissions is the attempt to uh, find a way to give cause to motivate digital preservation, which is much more durable, uh, of these recordings. And it, it, the political economic process of it, so all the steps that have to take place and all the things that have to line up in themselves are pretty difficult. Uh, just to start, but this is the first time and many, many kudos to the Library of Congress. In this case, Matthew Barton, curator of sound at the Library of Congress, Patrick Middling, uh, who is uh, the 
um, cataloger, chief cataloger of sound, and Steve Leggett, who runs the Recording Preservation Board. I'm, I'm mentioning names here on purpose because they have made it possible for this entire swath of preservation to happen uh, by uh, giving us a mandate uh, that is an academic federal collaboration, and it's really the first of its type for film and media studies, to help these different groups get things preserved and then have somewhere to put it. And that, that will be the Library of Congress. So everything that we get preserved over the next who knows how many years, um, and, and most of the preservation help uh, can't be given by the federal institution for a lot of legal and liability reasons, so it's going to be the task force, um, will end up in the recorded sound section at the Library of Congress. And you can actually go to the Library of Congress and research and listen to these recordings once they're digitized and donated. And so my job is to make sure that all of the digital humanities stuff, as we call it in, in the academy, so the metadata, uh, the legal binding documents, um, the, you know, the, the bit rate of the digital recording or a WAV file, that these are all correct for what they call ingestion for, for the Library of Congress to take it and then put it into the archive. And then they'll take the right, they take over from there. Then they take over uh, with the rest. But the important thing is that we'll be actually curating um, materials from sound history into the federal records. And this really, I think, from an academic standpoint is exciting because we can really focus on the alterity and omission parts of the history that we feel uh, need better attention. And so the team uh, will be seeking out, you know, um, I don't want to give away like all the different groups we're talking with because we don't have agreements yet, but the kinds of research that we really value uh, in terms of who hasn't gotten their say in history yet, that's our first priority for who will be ingested in terms of the, uh, the materials. Uh, uh, that said, we're, we're really open to commercial broadcasting history. Uh, any type of political position history, if we, if our if participants agree or not, doesn't matter. What's important is that it gets preserved, and that's all that's important. Uh, you know, and so it, it is a, a pluralistic project. So anyone who is really interested in preservation of the histories that they have their hands on and we can get it digitized, uh, we are extremely open to working with them on getting these materials put in federal site. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Dr. Josh Shepard about the origins of public media. Absolutely, um, which I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with this in the next few years, especially um, as I, you know, I'm starting to learn about oral histories and just like all of the ways that audio can be this really 
fascinating and really insightful way to understand like what maybe reading a paper about what was going on at the time isn't going to give me. It's going to fill in a lot of these different personal experiences, but also like you were saying, the the history that maybe I didn't learn and the, the history that's been missing from our public memory, certainly, but especially even in local settings too. It's it's really important, I think. So I really am excited to see the direction that the project continues to take. Um, and I know that you've kind of already talked through a little bit of the challenges of audio, especially when we're thinking about old audio files. And like, even today, sometimes it's difficult, you know, if you've got like a server crashes or something, you know, goes awry, it's like, oh, well, there goes all that content. But we're dealing with very time sensitive, like you said, decaying types of of work, right? And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the challenges of the work that you do, or maybe the field of public media and public broadcasting more broadly. Like, what are some of the real challenges that you all are faced with every single day. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, multiple ways to tackle this. Uh, One of the problems for public media is the opposite problem that most historians have, which is that um, public media practitioners were educators and bureaucrats. And so we have like abundant unprocessed archives. And so there's like tens of millions of pages of personal letters and reports and and they're spread all across universities around the country and whereas like some historians do this really elegant detective work where they find that one piece of paper that finally clarifies that one you know i'm being hyperbolic a little bit here but uh, in my case i just have to go sit for three four weeks in a city like columbus ohio or madison wisconsin and just read papers that no one's ever looked at since it's been donated and so writing the history of public media is tough because there's not a big compass for how to approach it. Um, and then uh, it's none of it's really organized for you to begin to thumb through it either. Uh, so in, in other ways, that's super exciting, but it's, it also just means it's like a really long process of research, just years and years and years. Um, I think in a more practical sense, though, for listeners, and this is um, uh, community media, right, is that you know, public media's sense of mission, I think, is waning. There's a commercialization of public media that's happening right now uh, that I think uh, might in some ways increase its audiences and in other ways decreases its necessity. So I think from my perspective, looking at it, and I've talked mostly about really early, almost proto-public media here, you know, today, because people don't really know that history as much. But, the, you know, it comes out of education. It was an educational mission. And it was supposed to serve every kind of student in every part of the country so that the social contradictions that prevented equal access to education could be reconciled. Uh, and, you know, since Nixon has pretty much been attacked, so early 70s, it's been attacked because overtly it's stated fidelity to diversity of programming and audiences, right? So the right didn't like that. Um, but ironically, it hasn't even really done that well in that history, right? And uh, my colleague, Laura Garbus. Uh, at Brown University has written about this very eloquently, but the diversity of public media history is not that great in the first place. Um, and so you have this like re, uh, or this um, this de-educationalizing uh, and de-public missioning of public media that I think makes it harder to make arguments in favor of it from an academic perspective, at least, but might actually bring more money, right? You know, podcasting doesn't have the same regulation as live broadcast and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I really think that they should be moving more towards the educational sector 
uh, than towards the commercial sector. That's my opinion. And I think that's also a way to get more funding again. So instead of seeking advertising, uh, you know, and then sort of retroactively changing the history from this educational mission to just a commercial mission, uh, that uh, maybe it should be partnering on grants with school districts, right, and producing different kinds of cultural and aesthetic content. You know, in some ways that it happens in terms of the kinds of features that uh, public media is amazing at doing about the different experiences in the world, you know, it bleeds into like StoryCorps and these other areas. But um, yeah, so I would say one of the big challenges is the commercialization of public media, which sort of eliminates its mandate, I think. Uh, so uh, any other challenges? Hmm. I mean, honestly, I think public media is great and super important, just, just for the record. <laughs> so a challenge is, is not a condemnation, I think, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I try to ask those types of questions of every single person I interview because I think they kind of shine light on things that, you know, the average listener might not even realize are, you know, perhaps, you know, things you're dealing with or what you're working through. And so I appreciate you sharing all of that. Um, definitely. Yeah, people should listen to more community media. That's what I think. People should be yeah. listening to the community stations run by people from the community with questions about the community. And I love that they're not as typically aesthetically uh, streamlined, right? So uh, that's not, a, you know, what I'm saying is people get on there and they got things to say, right? They got music they want to play that no one's heard in 30 years from a 78, not sorry, from a 45, I'm sorry, 78 would be much, much older. And to me, this is like the essence of media. You know, to me, like, this is like why we should have radio uh, is good community media. And it's less important that you're trying to please an advertiser uh, in those. So is that still true for public media? I mean, it's only part true at this point, you know? Mm, yeah. And kind of thinking, you know, to the future, right? Like I, I promised we'd get to this question, but I was wondering like what specifically fills you with hope for the future of public media and also for the archival work that you've been doing? Like what are some of the things that fill you with, with hope? I would say that uh, there, there has been uh, a series of new broadcasts on public media that do pay much more attention to diversity of experience, uh, that do features on um, you know, different backgrounds and ways of life that public media would have censored previously. Uh, I think that those programs have broken a glass ceiling that was really truly implemented for a long time, if it was intentional or not. I think also at the same time, I think podcasting is pretty awesome insofar as it's capable of reaching the smallest possible niche audience with on a topic and with any conceivable format towards that topic, if it even sounds like radio anymore or not, um, in ways that were aspired in the 1930s, right? So like almost anyone can potentially make a show for every audience, which was one of the early mandates of, you know, the mission of educational media. Uh, it was deliberately not commercial media in that way. So I think that like podcasting is a pretty exciting development because it allows for not only more voices, but more possibilities to not have to succeed or fail. Because if it finds an audience, it found its audience, right? And if it was only intending to find the, the broadcast uh, or podcast, you know, an audience of 70 people, then I found that audience. And, and that's actually kind of the essence of good non-commercial media, I think, is that just everybody has a, has a shot and everyone can get spoken to. 
Yeah. And kind of similarly in that in that realm, like what are some things that you think we're really going to have to pay attention to in the next decade um, in terms of even if it's preservation, but also in the ways we proceed forward with with our types of media? Uh, I would say the, the big worry for public media is that it's so expensive to produce television. And so you have like a WGBH, which is a Bayamith, you know, and you have WTTW in Chicago, and you have WNYC. You have, we have these um, big stations, but the way that PBS's mandate works is that PBS does not produce its own content, only the member stations. And it's so expensive that if at any point there's some kind of drying up of listener-supported media, that it, it, it's just not going to exist anymore. And so I think that there's a better chance that PBS disappears than NPR, which is more centralized and much, much cheaper to produce uh, between digital and radio. Uh, and so I think keeping an eye on PBS moving to just a streaming only function or something like that is one possible outcome. I think in terms of like just studying these things, which is extremely understudied still, uh, there's a big subsection of media studies as an academic discipline called media industries. And media industries has been almost entirely focused on just commercial broadcasting sociology, which is you know very valuable information for research. But I guess I have this hope that people will look at alternative forms of media production outside of the logic of late capitalism. You know, it's not just that media should be something that was, was profitable or not, or that certain large groups of audiences liked or not, or they had a certain kind of analytic or not. It's that uh, what if we looked at media as something that is functional within the sus sustainability of democratic discourse uh, and, 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 you know, looked at it through the lens of a nonprofit approach to this similar to national parks, uh, similar to settlement houses, you know, uh, in the older days when there was earlier radio, uh, you know, and similar to like equal access to medicine and education. Like to me, this is a very similar kind of situation with media and you don't do those other things because it might be profitable and it might've succeeded at being profitable or not. So what if we looked at all media that way, just as like, what is its public good? And I'm not saying this is the only way we should look at it, but I, I feel like, you know, things are so dire all the time <laughs> that there, there has to be some kind of ideological shift uh, by which branding doesn't become the ideal form of presentation, but like some kind of like coalitional identity does again, you know, and I, I'm not sure that's exactly what public media was ever after, but I think that um, it does give us a step forward and com community media even better. Uh, towards imagining what a good society looks like. Uh, and so that's kind of my hope there is that uh, with, you know, just what does it mean to research these things, that there are other ways of looking at what technology does and that we could harness that vision, at least temporarily, to think about other public problems. Mm. Well, it's not just how can I turn myself into a commodity, but like how can I improve, you know, um, educational questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a super beautiful uh, way to sum that up. I, I was very inspired listening to that. I was like, yes, like what if we could do that, right? Um, and another question I wanted to kind of ask you as we, you know, kind of wind down here is um, I know that 
the Sound Project obviously is seeking submissions. And I know if people are interested in maybe learning more about the type of work that you all are doing, like where are some good places they can turn to learn more about the projects, potentially even contribute if they had something um, that they wanted to share? So the Radio Preservation Task Force has its own Library of Congress page. You could just Google that, RPTF in Google, and I think it's the number one result right now at least. And I think, you know, what's going to happen is by the end of 2022, and things move very slowly in D.C., uh, we will be openly seeking submissions of collections. Uh, right now we're going to do a few pilots. We're happy to talk about it with anybody uh, who might conceivably want to begin uh, preserving different types of radio materials or sound, uh, non-theatrical sound materials. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, look us up at the Library of Congress. And um, I think that's, that's it for now. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today um, for this conversation. I thought this was super, super important. Um, and I appreciated you kind of breaking it down for us uh, how you did. So thank you so much, Dr. Shepard. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Josh Shepard. If you would like to find out more about Dr. Shepard's work with the Library of Congress, you can search for the Radio Preservation Task Force. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month. Thank you.